0: we've now completed the second day of our retreat and for most of us on retreat, whether new or more experienced in practice, the first days are somewhat difficult. We come in with the speed of the culture in our bodies. A lot of us have to get particularly busy the week before in order to make the time to stop on retreat. But the momentum is still there inside. And the speed and the stress of our own culture and lives is compounded by the knowledge that we carry in our being of the wars in the Middle East, and the violence and struggles in other parts of Asia and Latin America and the U.S. and Forms of injustice and uh, racism. And yet, in the midst of all these things that both we know are happening in the world or the struggles of our own life, we sense that there is another possibility. As Joanna Macy writes, Even the scientists can see, perhaps more quickly than the politicians, that there's no technological fix, no magic bullet, not the internet nor any number of computers that can save us from population explosion, deforestation, climate disruption, pollution, continuous warfare and racism, and extinction of species. It is simple. We are going to have to want different things, seek different pleasures, pursue different goals than those that have been driving us and our global consumer economy. When we come to a retreat and begin to slow down, we experience or face the forces in us of speed, of um, conflict, of greed, fear, delusion. And the question is, is that who we are? Or what can we do with this human realm that has suffering and incredible beauty so interwoven? In a recent interview with the Dalai Lama, um, Pico Iyer, who's a very wonderful writer, um, was trying to understand the charisma, or the appeal, or the, the beauty that so many people find in inspiration of the Dalai Lama. It was during a teaching in Japan. And he said, I looked at the Dalai Lama, and on this particular day, as I reflected on what he meant, the answer that came to me was that he has suffered to an almost incomprehensible degree. At age two, he was wrenched out of his quiet life by a group of traveling monks from Lhasa. At four, he was taken from his family and put through a ferocious monastic training. By the time he was 15, he was head of state up against Mao Zedong, the largest nation in the world. He was forced to flee his country that he loves He's seen hundreds of thousands of his people die and almost every diplomatic advance of 40 years be rejected. He sees this as his responsibility. His mother dies, his closest brother dies, he's always trying to rescue Tibet, his teacher dies, refugees come to his room daily, weeping. And in the middle of this, what is the man famous for? Pure optimism happiness, calm, an invincible sense of peace, smile, his warmth, everything that makes him what one friend of mine calls the happiest man alive. And it makes you humble in a way it causes you to think if someone who has seen and lost all that he has seen and lost 40 years waiting to go back to a home that is systematically being destroyed, if he can look at the light and things What right does any of us have to feel sorry for ourselves more than he? Some people would say, and I think with justice, that the Dalai Lama's message on one level is a rigorous optimism. Others would just point to his kindness, the equivalent of the Buddha holding up a flower and saying nothing moment after moment. But on this particular summer morning, In Japan, I thought that his lesson, one at least, might be just his life. One long, unbroken trail of separation and tragedy. And yet, to look at him, to listen to him, you would think that every moment was lit up with pure gold. When we come to retreat and stop the busyness and the complexity of our lives, we come face to face with the simplicity of being a human being, this human realm with its 10,000 joys and its 10,000 sorrows. And what is offered as medicine for the heart and the spirit by the teaching of the Buddhas and all of the awakened ones is a reminder to us that in the midst of all of this, As the Dalai Lama reminds us, there is a liberation of heart, a freedom, a compassion, that is natural to you, that is your birthright, that can be awakened. Now how is this done, this awakening that is natural to us? The gateway to our human awakening, says the Buddha, in his teachings over and over again, is the capacity that we have to be aware, to pay attention to the nature of this life. Sometimes it's called mindfulness, sometimes wise attention. In Pali or Sanskrit, that's yoni so manasikara, a phrase that means a wise seeing attention to this world. Sometimes it could be called sacred attention or a compassionate awareness of what is so. And tonight, because this is so central to the practice that we've undertaken together, I'd like to speak about the foundations of mindfulness, of this capacity to be aware that it is our great human treasure. My friends, says the Buddha in one text, there is a most wonderful way for living beings to realize purification, overcome directly grief and sorrow end pain and anxiety, travel the true path and realize liberation. And this is the establishment of mindfulness. What is the establishment of mindfulness in its four aspects. A practitioner remains established in the awareness of body in the body, diligent, wakeful, with clear understanding. Established in awareness of the feelings in the feelings, diligent, wakeful, with clear understanding. Established in awareness of the mind in the mind. And established And aware of the Dharma, of the laws of the world within the Dharma. And by paying attention to these that make up our life with awareness, with sacred attention, with an openness, we can learn what it is that entangles us and how we, human beings, can live on this earth and be free. The gate of awakening for human beings is this attention. It could also be called listening. The capacity to listen not just with the ears, but somehow to listen with the heart. The quality of mindfulness is spacious and easy, It allows what is present to be present as it is without trying to judge it. It's too big or too small, or right or wrong. Without wanting something, without expecting something. Without resisting what's present, can we actually face the experience of being alive with its suffering and its beauty? In each moment as it is, without expecting. It's an amazing thing because we meet people or we go places we have so many expectations, but here it's just to be present. There was a cartoon in the San Francisco Chronicle a few years ago, and it showed uh, desert scenery with a family Crossing on camels, the father and the first big camel with his carpets and bags, and then behind him was a mother and a slightly smaller camel, and then three small camels behind them with the three children, all trekking across wherever it was, the Sahara or something. And the father and the littlest child were having a dialogue in the cartoon, and the father says back to the little child, Stop asking if we're almost there yet. We're nomads, for crying out loud. And the truth is that we are nomads. That nobody knows what's going to happen tomorrow. We have some possibilities, but we actually don't know. And our experience can never be repeated it is never possible to have the same experience again. It is always new. So to be mindful is to be with the truth of this moment, of this experience as it is, in a receptive and an intimate way. As Robert Frost said, anything more than the truth would be too much. Just the truth of this moment's step in walking, the truth of this moment's breath, of the feelings that come, this is the way things are. And if you want to find what the Dalai Lama represents, that's really within you, it comes from this intimate and receptive and respectful attention. And you're around him, and that's what you get is this person who's so respectful and so intimate in a moment. I mean, I've told often the story of learning to bow in the monastery, in the forest. You know, and I was bowing to the teacher, and I was bowing to when I entered the meditation hall, and then they said, no, you have to bow to your elders. And it turned out when I asked who are my elders, they said, well, you know, all the people who've ordained before you, which means everybody. Okay. So I'm down in the dirt bowing to these people. And sometimes they were very lofty, you know, old, wonderful, wise people. Sometimes it was just this young punk who ordained two days before me, you know. His mother made it's like bar mitzvah, you have to go in the monastery. He couldn't care less. I'm bowing like he's some sage or some old rice farmer who's in there because he's retired and he didn't have anything better to do. And he sits around and chews beetle knot, and I'm bowing. Yeah. You know, And I didn't want to, I had all that inner resistance, paying my respects. But I had to, so I began to look and see if there's something I could find because of this struggle to bow to. And I began to see the wrinkles around the eyes of the old man I bow to, You know, and all the suffering that they had lived through and triumphed over, and I bowed to their courage as I bow to yours on this retreat. Or the young men, the young punks, you know, really not very much into the monastery, but they were so full of life, and there was no way of knowing who they would be, what they would make of their life. And I just bowed to the life in them, the vitality. You know, I bowed when I took a shower with the bucket at the well, and I bowed when I ate, and after a while, if it moved, I bowed to it. It was just what you did. This is the quality of mindful attention, to bow to what is, not to make it away, to say, oh, this too. So how to do this? The Buddha then gives very straightforward and simple instructions. He says, how does one practice establish this sacred attention? One goes to the forest, the foot of a tree, or to a quiet place, and sits down, holding one's body erect and establishes mindfulness here, where we are. First with the breath, breathing in and out. I'm aware this is an in-breath or an out-breath. This is a long breath or a short breath. Establishing awareness of walking, of moving, of standing, of lying down, of the body in the body. So here we are undertaking this universal practice of coming back to be aware of our life. But if we say, just be aware, we tend to get overwhelmed and scattered. So we start so simply, this breath, sometimes it gets soft. That doesn't mean that it's wrong or you need to make it stronger. Feel the soft breath. Sometimes it's long and slow. Oh, I like those long and slow breaths. Oh, there's liking as well as breathing. Yes? Sometimes it's shallow. Oh, I should have a deep breath. I don't like this breath. Oh, there's a shallow breath. And there's aversion. Interesting. And you're just aware of that. The breath is fine. It's just doing what it does, isn't it? And your task is to come back and feel all the different kinds of breath. Long and short, shallow and deep. And even a few moments of really being aware of the breath can bring us present, eno- present enough that the knots that we carry can can begin to untie. Because we're sitting here and we feel a few breaths, and oh, I'm doing okay. I felt four breaths, how great, you know. And it is good. It means we're here for a little bit. And then the story starts again, he did and she did. And we say, oh yeah, that's just the story. Thank you for your opinion, right? And we see it not as with that whole sense of belief, but there we are just present, breathing, living in this human body. The breath becomes a mirror by which then we can be aware of all that happens around it. We come back again and again gently to feel this breath. Now as we feel the breath we also inhabit what the Buddha calls the body in the body. And it's not an easy thing in our culture. Most every retreat I taught I like to use the line from James Joyce where he writes in one of one character, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. Because it's mostly how we do live. And so, a lot of the retreat, even for people who are pretty experienced in practice, is kind of reeling it back in and kind of reconnecting this mind that's every place and this body that is our human life on this earth. With the breath, with the sensations of sitting, with the physical pains that might arise, as Deborah talked about and Joanne talked about this morning. Relearning how to connect with the life of the body. Because in many ways, we've deserted our body. And it needs us. And we need it because it's through not attending to this body and its connection with the earth that we human beings can do terrible things to ourselves and to one another. Now, as we come into the body, what we begin to feel most commonly in the beginning, is not bliss and pleasure and happiness and all those kinds of things you read about in meditation texts that advertisements that got you here. (laughs) What we actually feel is all the crud and the tension and the stuff that we've been carrying because we've been running around for the last months and years and stuff and each time there's a difficulty we go "Ah!" and we hold it a little bit in our jaw or back or you know, our, um, wherever you hold your tension, you know where it is. And then you sit and you're quietly minding your own business, breathing, and what happens? Your jaw hurts, and your shoulders hurt, and your stomach hurts and stuff, and you're not doing anything wrong. You're minding your own business. What's going on is that the stuff that's held in the body begins to open and say, Me too, remember me? And we're asked to bring to that a respectful attention. This from Alice Miller, who writes, The truth about our childhood is stored in our body, and although we can repress it, we can never alter it. Our intellect can be deceived, our feelings manipulated, our conceptions confused, our body tricked with medication, but someday our body will present its bill, for it is as incorruptible as a child, who, still whole in spirit, will accept no compromises or excuses and will not stop tormenting us until we stop evading its truth. So even if your body hurts, and I don't mean just the knee pains from the posture, but the difficulties being here, there's a kind of holiness to that suffering are an honorable quality because it's your body saying, listen to me, hold me with compassion, respect me, let me open and come back to balance. And when we do pay attention, you can see it in the eating meditation, an apple or a raisin or a cup of tea, there's this innocence that returns. It's like the little seven-year-old girl who went up to her mother. Mama was going off to work with this briefcase and portfolio the mother taught in the university in the art department she said mommy what do you do when you're at work she said well when I go go to the university I teach people how to draw and her little girl looked at her kind of amazed and said you mean they forget (laughs) because we do we forget the most important things that were there in us and to become mindful of a breath just the way it is without trying to change it. Or to become mindful which means aware of what's opening, the pleasure, the pain, the tingling, the heat, the cold that's in the body is really a kind of innocence to return. And then we learn to live wisely because we can't live wisely or compassionately until we listen to and feel this very body. Frank Ostaszewski, who is a good friend and is the founder of the Zen Center Hospice in San Francisco, tells this story. The day before his death, John was in a waking coma. His face was full of tension. His head was thrown far back, the muscles in his throat were tight and constricted. It was rigid his head was so far back. His Each breath was a struggle. Clearly it was another stage of dying, but to me something seemed stuck. One famous teacher told me that his spirit was trying to leave the body. I should touch the top of his head to show the way. A physician told me to increase his morphine to relax the breathing. A body worker told me to hold pressure points in his feet to relieve the tension. I tried them, but it wasn't enough. Instinctively I just wanted to wrap myself around him. I climbed into bed, cradling John in the curve of my arms. I remember rocking him back and forth, and as I did I began to sing lullabies to him, not the nursery rhyme kind, but the love sounds you make to a frightened child. As I sang in his ear, kissed his forehead. My hands knew what to do, though there was no goal in mind. My fingers caressed his throat, stroked his face. My open hand circled his heart. We lost all sense of time. I could feel him sink into me, my body cushioning what was left of his bony form. Eventually his throat began to relax. His head came forward, his eyes opened. They looked relieved. Afterward, I wondered if I'd done the right thing. Maybe I should have followed the teacher's advice. Had I pulled him back from a near-death state? Stopped some process of release? I don't know, really. I do know that the heart has to be soft before any of us can be free. So this is the invitation of mindfulness of the breath, of the body with all its pains and pleasures as we sit and it opens, to be aware and to receive as if to bow to it, this too, with space, with compassion and tenderness. That's how your wisdom grows, that's how the freedom of heart will grow in you. But then the Buddha goes on, O monks, O nuns, O friends, Be aware not just of the body in the body, but of the feelings in the feelings. Be mindful and aware of pleasant feelings, of painful feelings, of neutral feelings, all the kinds of feelings. We're a nation that doesn't have, a culture that doesn't have, so much of what Dan Goldman called emotional intelligence. You understand what I mean? There's a sense of not knowing our feelings and it's true for many of us. I mean, I'm somebody who didn't really know what I was feeling for a lot of my life. Feelings are so amazing because they're powerful and actually they're always under there and they run most of the world. Fear, anger, greed, love, lust, jealousy, Um, excitement. That's what moves us around as human beings. So, what does it mean to pay attention to the feelings? And I don't mean that everybody here is going to have great cathartic feelings. Some you might. As Wallace Stevens says, I don't ask for the full ringing of the bell. I don't ask for a clap of thunder that would rent the veil in the temple a scrawny cry will do, from far off among the willows and cattails, from far off there among the galaxies. To pay attention, mindfully, respectfully, to the feeling life within us is like the weather that changes in the desert all the time. Happy and sad and excited. You think there's just a few feelings, but it's really kind of amazing when you know w- we're not so feeling literate a cartoon Calvin and Hobbes let's see Hobbes is the tiger is that right yeah just got to get that straight Hobbes says the tiger says aren't you supposed to be doing your homework now little boy Calvin's out and playing in the snow I quit doing homework homework is bad for my self-esteem <laughs> It is? asked uh, Hobbes. Sure. You could just say, I quit doing meditation or spiritual practice. It sends the message that I don't know enough, that I'm not enough as I am. All that emphasis on right answers makes me feel bad if I get them wrong. So instead of trying to learn anything, I'm just concentrating on liking myself the way I am. Hobbes says, Your self-esteem is enhanced by remaining an ignoramus? (laughs) Please, let's just call it informationally impaired. I have a list somewhere, I have a little bit of it here, of 500 feelings. Affectionate, ambitious, aggressive, ambivalent, angry, amused, amorous, antagonistic, apathetic, antsy, Appreciative, argumentative, blissful, bored, broken-hearted, calm, cheerful, claustrophobic, compassionate, concentrated, contracted, curious, concerned. It goes on and on. And there's a whole vocabulary of this amazing feeling life that makes up what is a central stream of our human experience. And when we are not mindful of our feelings, we get identified with them, we get wrapped, we get caught, and we hate, and we love, and we're lost, and we suffer, and we cause others to suffer. And it doesn't mean that you're supposed to do something about your feelings, or that there's the bad ones and the good ones. It means to be aware of this amazing feeling life that moves through us. To notice as we sit and walk, yes, There's the breath, and yes, there are the sensations of body that we're doing these first few days. And as the retreat goes on, what are the moods and the weather that comes in? The grief and sorrow, the longing. My teacher Ajahn Chah said, if you haven't wept deeply, you probably haven't begun to meditate. It's not true for everyone, but for a lot of us, the tears we carry, the beautiful things that come, So we begin to be mindful of the stream of human feeling. Now, we tend to talk in our instructions and evening Dharma talks more predominantly about sitting, but it's equally important that we bring this quality of sacred attention to walking. They feed one another and we learn to be mindful in the midst of activity as we walk. So several years ago at a three-month retreat in our center in Massachusetts, um, I had a person come in who say they hated walking meditation. Can't do it. And I gave them different instructions to make it more interesting and never worked. And I hate it. It doesn't work. They said, what can I do? Should I just sit? I said, well, there's a, there's a final instruction for you. If you really want to learn how to walk, and that is don't sit at all. Just walk and see what happens. So they said, can I, I said, just do a day of it. They said, how about half a day? Okay. Dear Jack, they left the note, long walking meditation assignment completed. Thank you. Now I can meditate while moving. I thought I might discover why I've been so resistant, but circumstances taught me so much more. I chose to walk in the annex walking room because it's small, beautiful, and usually quiet. Today, however, it was noisy as hell. There was some guy in there walking like the little engine that could, wearing noisy boots. Well, thought I, surely he'll be gone when the walking period ends. No such luck. This madman pounded his way through an hour and a half nonstop except when he paused to drink or remove a noisy layer of clothing. I tried meta. Surely he must have a lot of pain to be so driven. Then I realized that I wanted to kill the SOB. <laughs> I stood there noting hate, hate, hate. Later I just stood in the middle of the room and wept. Tears, tears. Then I got to the point where I realized whatever problem he had was his, not mine. And after that I got quiet and he was just sound. And so I walked and breathed and he paced and pounded and pretty soon it was all the same to me. His noise, my breath, the movement of my body. And after an hour and a half he left and then it was incredibly quiet, which was different, but not as much better as I would have expected. Mostly just different. I think I've learned something. Can you understand then what it means to In this simple practice of being aware of a step as you walk, being aware of the breath, that this provides the ground of awareness to see the arising and passing of the feelings, the sensations of body, all the dramas of our life, from the space of an open heart, from the space of compassion and understanding, because it will all come to you as you sit. How far you go in life, says George Washington Carver, depends on your being tender with the young, compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the striving, and tolerant of the weak and the strong, because someday in life you will have been all of these. Until you learn, we learn as we sit and walk, the whole of our humanity, And we have to find a way to touch it with respect, which is what mindfulness is, with spaciousness, with an ease, not caught in it, but also not denying it. I like this little poem from the calligrapher Lloyd Reynolds, probably the greatest American calligrapher. He writes, A bug crawls over the paper, leave him be. We need all the readers we can get. It's just this care for whatever is there. This too can be met with respect. Your agony, your lack of forgiveness, how hard it is to do metta for yourself sometimes. The pains in your body, the worries you have, and the fears that come, what we call the body of fear, this small sense of self that comes with all its... Stories and so forth. The dark night that comes where you sit and you say, I've done all I can, I can't go any further. That's the dark night. That's the moment, as Thomas Merton says, true prayer and love are learned in the hour when prayer becomes impossible and the heart has turned to stone. And anybody who's really meditated for a while um, becomes humbled by it. And it's one thing to sit up here and talk about it. you can do a nice thing. But it's humbling when I go on retreat, and when Joseph and Sharon and you know Deborah and Joanne and Wes, when we go on retreats, it's hard. <laughs> it is, because we're human, and we have all this that we have to face. It's just the truth of it. And so what's asked is this kind of respect. And from it grows a beautiful sense of trust. Trust that we can bear this human life. Trust that we can be present. And it's only by being present that we can heal ourselves, our bodies and hearts. It's only by being present that we can really be a healing in this world. Because the great sufferings that are going on out there are the sufferings from people who are unwilling to feel the consequences of what they do. So the Buddha says, Be mindful of the feelings in the feelings. Really feel them. And this is what will free you, like the body in the body. He goes on to say, My friends, what is next? in the foundations of mindfulness, is to establish awareness of mind in the mind. Seeing the mind within the mind as it is, knowing this is a contracted mind and this is a relaxed mind. This is a mind full of fear, this is a trusting mind. We begin to look at the mind in meditation As we're feeling the breath and walking, all these mind states and stories will come. Later on in the week, the instruction will be to actually look directly at the, the thinking mind, at the mind. Most of us believe that the mind is a mirror, more or less reflecting the experiences that come to it from outside, the impressions from outside, when in fact, the mind itself is the principal element of creation. That from Rabindranath Tagore. So much. We imagine something. This room never existed. Somebody imagined it as a thought, drew the plans, got the contractors, and built it. All our cities, and highways, and clothing, and the way we live as a species, all comes out of the mind. And yet we don't look at it very much. This amazing thought factory the mind secretes thoughts the way your salivary gland secretes saliva haven't you noticed you sit here you say quiet down a little bit does it listen not very much it just goes on telling an infinite number of stories it's like a pasta factory it only has one one product actually right but in all these shapes round and you know wavy and stuff it's the same thing it keeps spewing out thought out of nothing and then it disappears and more stuff comes. It's amazing. So with the mind, we learn to observe the thought factory rather than believing all the webs that it spins. You talk to yourself too much. This is from the writings of Carlos Castaneda again, Don Juan. says, You talk to yourself too much. You're not unique in that. Every one of us does. We maintain our world with our inner dialogue. And yet a man, or woman of knowledge is aware that the world will change completely as soon as they stop talking to themselves or believing the story. Ajahn Buddhadasa, one of the great meditation masters of the Thai forest tradition, Westerners came to him and said you know the modern world you'd seem so peaceful in your forest How does the modern world look to you from the perspective of the stillness of your monastery? He said I could describe it in three words to you Lost in thought Description of the modern world All these stories and you'll sit here and the stories will tell you anything the top ten tunes will come And they'll repeat themselves, you know, over and over again. Views, ideas, opinions, how it should be, who's doing what, who should have done what. And, you know, most of it is nonsense. I mean, there's a few good nuggets in there that you could use to, you know, write something interesting or do something. But you could kind of press the delete button on, I don't know what percentage it is, but you know it's in the high 90s, and you wouldn't really lose anything of value because they're so repetitive. And not only that, you scare yourself with them. You create, well, you know, I think, therefore I am. I don't think, therefore what? What happens when you don't take your thought to be yourself? becomes very interesting actually, doesn't it? We make so much of a sense of ourself, the whole, what's called the body of fear, the, the grasping of our separateness in the physical and emotional and thought body comes through the stories that we tell. Yet Mark Twain put it this way, he said, my life has been filled with terrible misfortunes, most of which never happened. So we tell all these stories. I love the cartoon that was in the New Yorker a few weeks ago. Some of you may have seen it. It shows this car going down a long highway across the desert, like out here in Joshua Tree or something, and there's a, a roadside sign that it says, Your own tedious thoughts, next 200 miles, <laughs> right? And only somebody who's been on a retreat could even imagine how true that is, right? So what's the idea? Is it to free yourself <coughs> from thoughts and to stop thinking? Thoughts are just thoughts. They're not a problem. Plus what you can't stop them. You can. There are certain practices you can do to stop them for a little while. <laughs> and it's very interesting. But then, you know, you pull your finger out of the dike or whatever. They just flush, flood, flood, flood. Flush, whatever it is, back through again. Um, That's not the point. The point is to see the mind for what it is. You become like Ulysses going by the sirens. You tie yourself to the mast. Remember, Ulysses didn't want to stuff his ear, he wanted to hear them. But in a certain way, you sit sit yourself, tie yourself to your zafu or your chair, and the thoughts will come and they will tap you on the shoulder and say, Come on, uh, this is really a good one, (laughs) you know. And you bow and you say, oh, planning or imagining or creative or sad thought or happy thought. You begin to use the power of mindfulness to realize that there is a space of awareness of your being that is much bigger than the thinking mind. And it is so liberating and so freeing to be aware. And at first it takes place maybe just a few times in a sitting. You're there... And you know, you go off to Louisiana and you're doing Mardi Gras, and then you wake up 15 minutes later and say, or 20 minutes later, and you say, Oh, I'm just sitting here in Yucca Valley. That moment of waking up is incredibly good news. It is the moment of mindfulness that the Buddha said is liberating, because in that moment, instead of being lost in that, you realize, Oh, here we are, and that is just a thought and is the space around thoughts, the gap between thoughts, the realization that that's not who we are in a moment. Oh, boy, lost in that one, wasn't I? That begins to give us again a ground of trust and being that's so much greater than those stories. A trust in the heart, a trust in our own Buddha nature. And if you don't learn that freedom with your own mind, you will suffer terribly and you will cause others to suffer. So there's the mindfulness that we are training of the breath and body in the body, of the feelings in the feelings, of the mind in the mind. And finally, the Buddha says, the fourth, The foundation of mindfulness is to train yourself to be aware of the dharma in the dharma. Now, dharma is a word that means all the things of the world or the laws of the world of life, the truth of the way things are. So within the experiences of life, to see the laws of life so that you become wise and compassionate. It's part of what makes the silence in the retreat so precious. Because by being silent we can actually see and hear and feel and sense with this mindful heart, with this listening capacity, how things are in their own right. Because, as Krishnamurti says, it's the truth that liberates you and not your efforts to be free. What finally brings us freedom is not, oh, I'm going to try and be free in some way, but, oh, this is the way things are. This is actually the way this human world is that I have been born into, that I have incarnated into, to see what is so, to see the laws that govern this life, So a lot of times people will come to interviews and they'll say, am I doing it right? You know, or am I having good sittings? Or How come I'm not having peace or bliss or whatever idea that you have, you're supposed to be experiencing on the first or second or third day of a retreat? You can't do it wrong. You are either mindful of what's present or you're not. And when you're not mindful, which happens all the time during the day, Then at some point comes that magic moment where you realize, oh, I wasn't here again. And instead of judging, or you could judge, you could judge, and then you bow and say, oh, there's judgment, right? Whatever comes next, you become mindful of, and that's it. Oh, this is a sitting with a lot of thoughts. This is a sitting with not so many thoughts. This is a sitting with fear. Oh, I hate this kind of sitting, hating, hating. This is a sitting with fear and aversion and judgment. Okay, This is a sitting where it's more peaceful. This is a really good sitting. I like this. Oh, pride. This is a sitting with a lot of pride. I'm really doing it, doing right. And one of those isn't better than the other. What you begin to see is, what you begin to see, what you begin to feel and relax into and sense is the truth of awareness that can let all of this Arise and pass and rest just where we are. To be here now in the reality of the present, which is the only refuge. All the rest is fantasy. The abode of the Awakened Ones, the abode of the Buddhas, of the Enlightened Ones, is the present moment, is this place where we are. The intimacy of the Dalai Lama, the the compassion of whatever person that you admire. It comes from being present with things as they are. Now as we become present, we begin to notice things. One is that there are patterns to our experience. That is what's called karma. A bear paced up and down the 20-foot length of his cage. When, after 10 years, the cage was removed, the bear continued to pace up and down the same 20 feet as if the cage were still there. A sad story, a little anecdote, if you will. But there's a certain truth to it, isn't there? We begin to sit and see the habits that repeat themselves because not only do things arise and pass in our experience, but they do so according to certain patterns. And depending what seeds we plant or what patterns we practice, if you will, those become the patterns that continue to re-arise. What's also beautiful, though, is to see that those patterns that we've been caught in in different ways, the unskillful ones or the beautiful ones that arise, that all of them are full of holes. There's space around them, there's gaps in them. I had this birthday card given to me some time ago from a drugstore birthday card that says on the top of it, the Dalai Lama's birthday party. And there's the picture of the Dalai Lama in his trademark sunglasses, opening this huge present with the wrappings on the ground, and all these smiling monks around him. And you can sort of see in the box, And then he's exclaiming as he holds the box, Wow, nothing, just what I always wanted, because there's nothing in it. It's lovely. And when the Buddha says to see the Dharma in the Dharma, you see the patterns of things, but underneath that you also see the emptiness out of which they come. Because this morning you had amazing thoughts about things. You don't even remember what they are, you might remember a few of them, but in the middle of them they were amazing or great emotions of sadness or anger or fear or love or joy or whatever. Where are they? Someone show them to me. What happened to them? What happened to yesterday, the first day of your retreat? Or last year? You know, 2001. Remember the millennia? That was supposed to be a big deal, right? it just vanished into the void where it came from. Back with the pyramids and the dinosaurs and everything. That's what happened to your last sitting. It just disappears. It's amazing. It troops out of emptiness, through me. says. It does its dance and then the next moment appears and the other one just disappears. And, and we take it for granted. But when we become mindful, we begin to see the mystery of life appearing moment after moment and disappearing. Suppose, says says the Buddha, a man or woman who were not blind beheld the many bubbles on the Ganges river as they floated along and after watching and examining them carefully they would appear empty, unreal and insubstantial. In the same way does the meditator experience Body phenomena, all the sensations of the body, feelings, perceptions, thoughts, and states of consciousness, past, present, and future, examining them, aware of them, and after they do so, they equally appear empty, void, without a self, without substance. Now, this is in some philosophy or something to believe, or not to believe. It's really pointing us to the awareness of what our experience shows us. Things are impermanent. Anybody have an experience in this retreat that has stayed? Please raise your hand. Even the ones that seem solid, this terrible pain in my back, so forth. When you really bring your attention close to it, That pain is made up of pinpricks of throbbing and needles and fire and it's actually doing a whole dance in there. And what seems to be one thing is it becomes a kind of atomic flow of horribly painful experiences. But they're not one painful experience, you have thousands of them, right? And you begin to realize that we are a river. Sometimes the river runs through uncomfortable territory, Hades and so forth. Sometimes it's heavenly and it runs through the Deva realms. We don't get a lot of choice about that. What we do have a choice about is whether we hold on and struggle and fight, which makes it all the worse, or whether our heart is compassionate and free. And the more we look, the more we see how difficult it is to say, well, this is what I am. These thoughts are who I am. I hope not. These feelings, this is me. But they're gone, then who are you? These sensations. I remember talking with Ramdas after his stroke several years ago that most everyone knows about, and where he was very close to death. A lot of his doctors thought he wouldn't make it, and he couldn't speak for a long time, and now still speaks Somewhat haltingly, although he's so much better in teaching. And I remember talking to him after he went out to do his first lecture, um, first teaching after two years after the stroke, after he'd gone through ICU and the rehabilitation and all these things. And I said, Ramdas, how was it to go out and sit up there and, you know, even though it was halting and struggling? To teach again, did you like it? Was it did it feel good to be out there? I said, I didn't like it. I said, Why not? He said, Well, they want me to be Ramdas and I'm not him anymore. It's a very poignant and yet genuine insight because we're not that person that was this many years ago and that many years before. What we are is a a river, a changing process. We are not the same person, even day after day. When we identify with the small sense of self, we get territorial, greed arises, fear arises, hatred arises, all that kind of confusion. But as we sit and pay attention to the true nature of this life, to feel its impermanence, that you can't hold on, or you can and you suffer. its Like rope burn, Joseph Goldstein uses that phrase, you get rope burn from holding on to your own experience. Or you can let go, and you can actually live here in the space of freedom that is not bound by that idea of how things are supposed to be. And in this freedom, there is a natural presence, mindfulness, and a tenderness or compassion. Because we're not trying to make it some other way. We don't have such a big agenda. When you meet somebody, and you really meet them at your gate, laughing, inviting them in, you know, as if this is a person you've never seen before and you really heard about and you're interested. It's such a wonderful blessing to meet each moment in that fashion. My teacher Ajahn Jamnian, some of you may know, a forest master from Southern Thailand comes every year to teach at Spirit Rock. He doesn't speak very much English. Um, He begins people meditating with awareness of their body. The skeleton, he says, go and take your bones for a walk and feel all the elements that make up this body. You know, and then you can be aware of the feelings and of the mind. But let yourself see that this isn't who you really are. And as you do, he says, rest yourself in pure awareness, in the spaciousness that is ever-present. Not the limited sense of self, but this space of awareness. And then he looks up with this big smile and he uses his two English words. He says, empty, empty, empty. And then he says, empty, empty, happy, happy. We smile some more empty empty happy happy empty empty happy happy It's not far away the mercy that we seek the um, Mystery of life It's not something you get to at some other place. It is here to open to in in this moment, and this one, and this one. And the invitation of the retreat is to awaken that capacity of your heart, courage of your heart, to be present for this human life with compassion, to bow to it, and with the freedom that is your birthright. The art of living, says Alan Watts, is neither careless drifting on one hand, nor fearful clinging to the past on the other. It consists in being completely sensitive to each moment, regarding it utterly new and unique and having the mind and heart open and wholly receptive. On Storm Jameson, the novelist says, There is only one world, the world pressing against you at this minute, even as you hear these words. There's only one minute in which you are alive, the minute here and now. The only way to live is by accepting each minute as an unrepeatable miracle. So let's just sit for a moment. It is a difficult and wonderful training that we undertake, the liberation of the heart in the face of all things. So stay mindful as you sit, as you stand up to go and walk, as you take your steps in walking, come back to sit, as you go to sleep. Let your day here be one of resting in the foundations of mindfulness